agnostics, long-haired weirdos, short-haired weirdos, vandals, hooligans. The government of the government love. The government of the government love. The government Welcome to The Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Trey Orndorff, a political scientist at Oklahoma Christian University, and I'm joined by Ken Katkin, a professor of law at Chase Law School. Welcome back to the show after delay, Ken. It is great to be back, Trey. Well, I just wanted to say thank you. I know a lot of our listeners were uh, worried and concerned about me um, because you know I had had some uh, medical problems, and that's why Ken and I weren't able to do our regularly scheduled show a few weeks ago. Um, and so I won't uh, bore everybody with, with uh, time, but you know I had been in and out of the hospital. Uh, but things are much, much better as a result now. And I should be moving forward in 100% in just a few weeks. Uh, and so I really appreciate everybody's thoughts and patience with that. I know it's always weird when we kind of switch things up. Uh, but it, it, it was a bizarre, <laughs> it was a bizarre time uh, prepping for the show and then actually ending up uh, having a surgery. Uh, so, but I, again, I appreciate every, all the listeners who were thinking about me and praying about me. Uh, it's always very much appreciated. Well, uh, Ken, why don't we uh, start off the show with our first story, which I really think is kind of a story within a story, which is Stella Manuel. Stella Manuel and her hydroxychloroquine. Uh, Donald Trump and Donald Trump Jr. both retweeted and supported a video this weekend uh, that highlighted physician Stella Manuel and her so-called cure to COVID. Now, the video ended up getting watched tens of millions of times on Facebook and on Twitter before ultimately being removed. As a matter of fact, uh, Donald Trump Jr. even had his account locked down uh, until he removed the post for violation of terms of service. Now, many on the right uh, have been quick to note that this is really nothing more than conservative voices being silenced again and and a desire, I think, in some quarters to kind of hide the cure, the, the all uh, claiming they. Um, in fact, I don't know about you, but I had a number of pretty close family members and associates who made this very claim. And it's one that I think we're going to uh, take up a little bit more when we talk about uh, the big tech companies testifying before Congress. Uh, but in the meantime, the major news outlets, starting with the Daily Beast, uh, started reporting on Stella Emanuel's other claims. And this includes, and I, and I really wish I was joking about this, uh, things that like that reptilians control government, that witches and demons can sleep with you in your dreams and cause you medical issues in real life, including cysts, which is an issue near and dear to my heart at the moment. <laughs> uh, and even more astoundingly, um, Emmanuel uh, reports that alien DNA is used in current medical treatments for a variety of kind of uh, bizarre reasons, and that scientists, no less, they're powerful human beings, are finding a way of using vaccines to prevent people from being religious. Now, <laughs> I think, Ken, I think we're both going to agree this video and the argument set of it is is the definition of insanity, um, both from the people who were putting it forward and also just on the face of their claims. Uh, and I don't think we're going to need to spend any time discussing the probability of alien DNA, but this is actually getting a lot of support from mainstream folks. And so one of the people who is supporting this is President Trump, who, when asked to follow up about his retweet of Emmanuel, said this about her specifically, quote, I thought she was a very impressive. 
in the sense that from where she came from, I don't know what country she comes from, but that she's had tremendous success with hundreds of different patients. I thought her voice was an important voice, but I know nothing about her, end quote. And so, you know, right now, just to be clear for listeners, in in all of the current randomized trials, there's currently no evidence um, that hydrochloroquine is effective in treating COVID-19. The FDA removed emergency use of it because of its associated risks. Now, this week, the Henry Ford Health System did release a study uh, showing evidence that it might reduce the death rate of COVID patients who were hospitalized. And even that claim, of course, is far different than the claim of Emmanuel, which is that it's a cure. So not a cure, but a potential for lowering death rate. Um, But this study actually flies in the face of lots of other studies, which also came up this week. Um, One of the problems is it's not a randomized study, and that's something that got pointed out in hearings uh, on Friday. And so, Ken, really what I think about is a lot of people are confused about um, the drug. They're confused about masks. They're confused about all of this. And I think the reason why uh, is because higher education and and school systems have have fundamentally failed them. People just don't understand how rational science works. And I think instead, these things have just kind of become a rallying cry. So here's what I kind of wanted to talk about. Uh, Not so much the alien DNA, uh, but how does someone understand these kinds of claims in a rational manner or in a scientific manner? What, what does it mean to rationally understand anything? And, and that's the whole point of the politics, guys, right? It's in our tagline. We are dedicated to rationality and rational debate. Um, but I worry that many, even of our listeners who may want to be rational, who want to be scientific, they don't really know what that means in kind of a nuts and bolts way. Uh, And so maybe they turn on our show, maybe they turn on to some other trusted news outlet and they say, well, those are the experts. They know what they're saying. You know, Ken, he knows the law. Trey, he knows political science. So uh, I'm going to listen to them. But how does someone begin to understand the scientific process enough to say, look, this is the reason why mask recommendations have shifted or why a particular drug isn't a cure, uh, even if there is a single uh, non-blind study? Uh, and I know that's something that you do in law as well. So, Ken, what is it? I mean, why is it e- seemingly easy for some of us to take a look at this as opposed to, I think, a lot of people like the president and says, well, yes, it's the same as everything else. How are we rational? How do we approach that? Yeah, it's, it's a very big question, Trey. <laughs> I don't know that I want to blame it entirely on the educational system, though. I mean, President Trump is a... Ivy League educated person himself, uh, you know, Stella Emanuel herself has medical degrees, apparently, and must have gone through college and medical school. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, so, so I don't I don't know that I don't know that, um, that 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 I would divide it into, well, people who are uneducated um, have have uh, are, are willing to believe uh, unbelievable things. Oh, no. My point was, I think, I think they're being failed. Yeah, my, yeah. my point there was to say, Ken, that I think they're actually being failed by many institutions of higher education. Yeah. Yeah. I I don't mean that they're not there, but rather that I I think that we, we, we I think there are some institutions that fail the litmus test of producing graduates who are able to, to, to identify what makes something a rational cogent argument or a scientific argument and what makes it not. So I don't disagree. I I don't mean to make people sound like they're ignorant. yeah, no, I think I think we're on the same page here. But it's just, I mean, I just want to, we have to remember President Trump is an Ivy League uh, educated right. person. And and yeah, and I think other people, um, uh, um, you know, some people who are, um, you know, interested in promoting what, what I think you and I both see as kind of anti-scientific or anti-rationalist views um, are well-educated people. And and I, I you know, I, I, it's a complicated thing because in, in our system, 
um, of the marketplace of ideas and of freedom of speech, it's fairly essential that people whose ideas seem weird or wrong uh, still be allowed to espouse those ideas. Um, I, you know, otherwise, you know, people like Galileo, um, you know, would be suppressed. <laughs> right. uh, 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 you know, people like Charles Darwin would be suppressed. Right. So, I mean, so new ideas that are true may end up um, sounding very crazy at the time that they're uh, articulated. So I, I think we, we have to have freedom of scientific speech. But the part that I think you and I are, are fully in agreement on is that it's it's really irresponsible for um, people who are in positions of authority um, and who have big, large um, uh, pulpits that um, they have audiences who are listening to them and placing trust in them, um, if they're going to if they're if they're going to really um, uh, promote um, unorthodox views, they should try to understand why those views are unorthodox. You know, I think I think President Trump should before he just promotes Stella Emanuel's view because he has some wishful thinking that COVID is just going to go away. Um, I think he should try to understand, well, why why does mainstream medical opinion not believe that there's any value in hydroxychloroquine? And and what what is it? What what is uh, if Stella Emanuel has a difference with mainstream medical opinion? What's the evidentiary basis of her difference with mainstream medical opinion? I think I think, you know, people are really short circuiting that part of the inquiry. And I think I don't think it's necessary for everybody to be that responsible, but I think it is necessary for people who have uh, platforms and audiences to try to be that responsible. No, I agree. I, I think that's one of the things those of us who take issue with Trump in a larger way have a problem with him is, is that he purposefully and dangerously floats things. Uh, and and, and in the bonus show, we're going to talk more about some of the dangerous things that he has floated legally speaking. Um, but, you know, one of the things as a scholar of political communication for me, uh, and, and, you're, and you were kind of getting at it there, Ken, when you were talking about the marketplace of ideas, is, you know, there's a responsibility on everybody to be able to think about things, I think, in a deeper way, to give themselves time to think about things in a deeper way. Uh, and, and I think I, I, one of the things I think we, that many don't understand is, is that we have taken the way we think about communication uh, and we want everything in, in, in teeny little meme soundbite uh, positions. And, and that's not the way uh, that this works. So, for example, I know that I, I brought up the issue of masks and I'll bring it back uh, around here. A lot of people said, well, you know, originally scientists told us that we don't need masks and then they all changed their minds. How can you believe anybody in anything? Uh, but I, I think that's, again, a kind of a misunderstanding of the process of thinking kind of rationally and scientifically, which says, and that's what you were even suggesting when you talked about Galileo, which is, I should be, I, if I cannot change my mind, <laughs> right, I've, I've mm -hmm. left the position of rationality. Uh, so that means as you, as you get more evidence, that you have to be willing to change. And this, I think, is kind of hard, and that's what you're talking about here in kind of p people in positions of power is, is that we want them to be unchanging, right? So their position on, you know, uh, abortion or pro-life, you know, if you ever deviate from that, you, you, you have committed some grievous sin. And, you know, we can save the, the, the contents of that for later. But I, I think they bring that same kind of passion to items that you're trying to understand rationally. I think part of being rational, part of being scientific is, is understanding that claims will not last eternally. <laughs> right. 
And if they if they do, well, then, then you've kind of left the scientific realm. Uh, and I think that's one of the things. So, I mean, for a listener who says, but look, can I want to be able, I agree with you, I want to be able to trust these. How, but what's your standard? So when you're looking at something like an issue we're going to bring on the show uh, and, uh, and, and a claim like still a manual comes up, yeah. what, what's your rubric? I mean, just kind of walk us through right. what you do. Yeah, that's what I was thinking about, because, of course, you and I both, we're not actually scientists ourselves, so well, we can talk uh, about this. Oh, you're a scientist? I'm sorry, you're I a did. scientist? I'll be honest, as a, I, I think of myself as a scientist, because I'm a political scientist, I do statistical oh, work. Scientist. Yeah, okay. I really but, do. But so. What I mean to say is, you, you and I are both, I think, willing to um, dismiss the validity of Stella Emanuel's claims. I certainly am willing to dismiss their validity, but yet I'm, I'm not... Um, performing controlled scientific experiments myself. My basis for dismissing her validity is not that I've gone into a lab and given hydroxychloroquine to one group of people who have COVID and, and, and given something different to another group of people who have COVID. I mean, that would be the true scientific method, would be actually doing the experiments ourselves and, and seeing what happens. And so we're not able to do that. We're not scientists. We're not capable of doing that. Um, but I think, um, you know, on, on scientific questions, what you want to see is that there, there's um, credentialed experts um, who are um, versed in how to do the scientific method properly um, and who are finding acceptance um, among their own scientific peers um, in terms of what they're doing. Now, the scientific method uh, does involve hypothesis testing, so they have to make hypotheses, test them, um, sometimes the, when they, when they test a hypothesis, it may provisionally appear like they've proved it out and it's true. Uh, but then when they reformulate it later, um, in more subtle and more nuanced and more specific ways, you know, the thing that looked true at first may, may end up being only half true. So, so, so true science is always kind of revising our, our sense of what we actually know. Um, but yet, you know, for those of us who aren't scientists, I think really what we have to do is rely on what seems to be consensus opinion among scientific communities. Um, and I, I don't know that we're always bound to be in a cult of authority, but, but I think if you're ever going to believe a kind of heretic scientist against a mainstream scientific opinion, it, there's some responsibility there to have some, some kind of understanding of what it is that the, that the heretic scientist has looked into, what experiments they've done that make them actually um, think that the mainstream opinion is, is wrong. And I, I certainly think there should be a thumb on the scale in favor of believing mainstream scientific opinion, but I don't think people are obligated always to believe it. And now, even when you talk about that, though, I, I think for some, you might have already left kind of the uh, understanding realm because, you know, when you're talking about, well, what makes something mainstream, what makes it something to have, uh, you know, peer-reviewed work? As a matter of fact, in hearings on uh, Friday, one of the debates was about, well, you know, the the, the methodology of studies when the public needs to be paying more or less attention. Uh, so, for example, I think when you're talking about mainstream, what you're saying is, is that there have been multiple peer-reviewed studies on an issue uh, that use yeah. some of the most rigorous processes, which are things like uh, having a, uh, a blind and a non-blind kind of study where you're somebody's get, somebody or some set of things is getting a dose of whatever. And so in my field, right, we're not, we're not literally giving you a dose of something, but maybe we are having you watch uh, certain kinds of television programs, or we're having you um, engage in certain kinds of behaviors, or we do kind of a natural experiment where people themselves have segregated themselves into different categories. So here's people who, you know, have cable, and here's people who don't have cable. And then we can take a look at what the difference 
you know, having cable might have on your, um, uh, you know, your news, uh, your news sources or inputs. Uh, and, and I think those are the kinds of studies we need to think about as opposed to, and I think this is the kind of claim and that maybe what I was kind of getting at is when I see claims both in the medical world or closer to my own scientific home of the social sciences is the question of, well, somebody say, well, I've seen that. Well, you know, I've seen lots of things too. As a matter of fact, earlier today, I saw a, uh, I saw the, uh, my neighbor's, uh, delivery man, he hauled off and threw the package about 10 feet into their door, right? Now, I saw that, <laughs> uh, but me seeing that doesn't mean that the average delivery guy on the average day is going to throw packages 10 feet, right? Uh, and so when you see those kinds of claims, those are kinds of what we might call anecdotal. And so for me, what I see in this video is just a bunch of people making anecdotal claims. Right. Um, right. And I think that's something that's important to think about, too. Now, so before we yeah. kind of move on to this next story, kind of to, to finish it up, why do you think, Ken, it, it, there appears to me, uh, and I think there's some emerging evidence for this, uh, that masks, um, hydrochloroquine, and others are kind of becoming almost litmus tests of political ideology? Why do you think these yeah. are the items that are becoming litmus tests for political ideology? I'm going to finish this off. I I think that can actually be blamed on President Trump. I, I think it's it's because he has promoted divisiveness in every possible way. And this is just one more way that he's promoting divisiveness that I think he, he, he has sort of um, he has this political intuition that um, the way that he maintains the fervent support of his base is by uh, making them think that they're really in a war against everybody else. And so he always looks for ways to um, divide people. And so here where you have a, a you know, fairly strong scientific consensus saying um, you know, the COVID virus is real, um, the kinds of measures that can um, limit, limit um, its spread are things like social distancing and, and the use of masks, and there's no actual cure, and uh, hydroxychloroquine is not an actual cure. You know, when scientists are saying that, I think um, President Trump sees an opportunity there to um, be divisive and, and to sort of lump in the scientists who are saying that with kind of the, the hated liberals and uh, um, um, something, you know, there's maybe even something vaguely anti-religious about, about science um, is sort of the way that Trump wants to portray that to perhaps the, his religious base. And, uh, and so I, I, think, I think if he wasn't the president and he wasn't promoting that narrative, um, it would not have the kind of mass um, acceptance that it has. Well, why don't we uh, turn to our next story, which is Attorney General Barr's testimony on Tuesday. So on Tuesday, the House Judiciary Committee was able to question Attorney General William Barr. Now, originally, he was supposed to come in May 2019, but he never showed up because he objected to being questioned by staff attorneys. Now, this Tuesday's hearing was without the assistance of staff attorneys, which is why he showed up. And to be honest, I'm just going to wear my, uh, my position on the sleeve. I think Democratic questioners failed spectacularly. Uh, and the reason I think they failed is because they didn't really allow Barr to answer questions. And it really just made them look petty. And it allowed Barr to look professional uh, on some really shaking ground. Uh, now, Barr did respond when he had a chance to respond. Uh, he looked pretty poorly. As a matter of fact, uh, when he re responded to Representative Lee's question on police brutality, uh, Barr responds, quote, I don't agree that there's uh, systemic racism in police departments generally in this country, end quote. 
or when he declined to understand the McLean case, or he stated, quote, police are less likely to shoot at a black suspect, a little bit more to shoot at the white. However, police are more inclined to use non-lethal force in contact with an African-American suspect, end quote. Uh, And again, maybe kind of going back a little bit to the studies, even starting in 2016 and moving forward, we've had a lot more uh, robust statistical social science evidence to suggest that police encounters are higher for African-Americans. And as a matter of fact, even in 2020, some of our most recent research on this suggests that white officers who are engaged in in African-American neighborhoods are far more likely to have lethal encounters uh, than non-white officers in those same communities. Now, of course, the problem and the reason it's taken so long to do a lot of this, we talked about uh, science earlier on, is in the social science realm, some of this data is really hard to get your hands on. And police data is particularly fraught with problems. Uh, it usually has undercounts. Uh, interactions can be uh, coded wildly differently because each state has their own coding mechanisms. Uh, but even what we have suggests that Barr is outright wrong and it made him look really bad. But those moments were few and far between, in my opinion, Ken. Uh, Democrats seemed largely to fail on a pretty easy target for a guy who continually supports some pretty horrendous policies uh, on behalf of President Trump. Now, I know that staff attorneys weren't part of this uh, and they undoubtedly would have helped. But wasn't this a time for Democrats to prepare a little bit, maybe talk uh, to those staff attorneys in advance instead of just yelling over bar and then looking, having them walk out the room looking, I'd say, pretty good overall? What do you think? Yeah, I mean, I'm not going to I don't think he looks good, but I, I do agree with you that it was a lost opportunity. Um, I, I, you know, I thought he still looked pretty bad, actually, but he uh, um, he could have been made to look a lot worse if he would have had more of a chance to, to speak. Uh, the problem is, I think the problem the Democrats were up against is that um, Barr has continuously refused to appear before the House or any House committee in any format other than the format that we saw uh, this week. So he, he, um, he will, he's only willing to be questioned um, if he can be questioned by um, the members themselves who only get five minutes each. And it would be, it would be a much more effective way to question him. If instead of the members questioning him, you had well-prepared staff who could ask, who kind of could use much more time and could give him time to answer the questions and then ask follow-up questions based on his answers. But, even if the Dems had mostly asked better questions, he's very good at um, just kind of filibustering and slowballing. Um, he could run out a five-minute clock without giving anyone a chance to have a follow-up question. So if that's the format that he that that he's um, able to to get, you know, I think it is going to be hard to land those knockout punches on him. Now, I did think at least Congressman Swalwell landed a few knockout punches on him um, with respect to the political interference in the uh, in the Roger Stone case. Um, so I don't I don't think every Democrat failed. Um, but I do think the Democrats, since they only had five minutes and their their choice was basically they could ask him a first question, hoping that they would then get to ask follow up questions. But he would never you know, finish answering the first question um, or they could just use the five minutes to give a speech. You know, it doesn't shock me that they used the five minutes to give a speech, but it does seem like a lost opportunity. So, I mean, I agree with you. I mean, in the format that you have, that you're a little bit hamstrung. But even given that, I mean, the opening statement was kind of a joke. Uh, the amount of leeway they gave uh, for the, 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 some of the, that pointless video montage, uh, it, you know, 
it, it seems like there were some there were some unforced errors there too, uh, yeah, yeah, above yeah, and beyond yeah. just the format. So I don't disagree that the format's problematic. Uh, but I mean, th- this is a chance to you know to finally uh, hit it bar, especially in a week. And again, something we'll talk about on the bonus show uh, when no one's really willing to step back from the brink, at least inside the administration, uh, when it comes to Trump floating crazy theories about uh, postponing elections uh, to to troll or however else you want to think about. <laughs> So I guess I'm pushing you that a little bit. So do you really think it was all the format? Yeah. There you go. <laughs> well, I think the format was a big part of it. So, so let me put it, let me, so, so if the, if the Democrats were, um, if they, if they had tried to really within that format, if they wanted to be more effective, what it would have required them to do was to, um, the member, the democratic members of the committee would have had to coordinate with each other, uh, about only a handful of issues. They would have had to pick, just a few issues, not all the different issues that they're all interested in. And they would have had to, to agree with each other. Let's only ask about these issues and no one ask about any other issues. And that way, um, you know, when, when, when one member asks a question and Barr gives a really long answer that runs out the five minutes, um, then the next member will just be able to pick up with the follow-up question to the question that the first member just asked. And I think they could have done that, which I think is what you're saying. And that yes. definitely would have been more effective. But I think, but I think the, 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 the difficulty of actually doing that, if you have members um, asking the questions rather than staffers asking the questions, is that the members also feel under great pressure from their own constituents to talk about the issues that their particular constituents care about. And, and, and that's not the same for all of those members, right? So I think it would be hard for them to coordinate, like, like the, like the Roger Stone stuff that um, Swallow was asking about, which I thought he was very effective about, um, you know, I think for, for, for members, say, who come from um, um, uh, majority minority districts where there's a lot of uh, uh, police community relations problems and things like that, the, the Roger Stone issue might seem like a lesser issue. So I think it would have been hard to get those members to be willing to dedicate their, their time to something like that. So I think, I think members have this countervailing uh, concern that they have to actually talk about the things that their own constituents want them to talk about, which makes it harder for them to get together on uh, on one page and, and agree, well, we're, we're all going to only focus on a few issues and not let him wiggle out of talking about those few issues. Yeah, that's a common, actually, argument on Congress's part that they get so hyper involved in their own um, constituency issues that they can't overcome any kind of collective action problem. Uh, but I've often wondered if that isn't, in fact, a failed strategy, because at base, what you're saying then is, is so I will go ahead and ask my questions that I will know will never make it back to my uh, constituency because of the format is, is going to bury it anyway. Because if my question doesn't land, if it doesn't hit, who's going to pay any attention anyway? I, I again, I think that you had had a better, as you had mentioned, a li- at least some coordination on the front in the hopes that you could then at least have something that you could that you could show for your uh, for your district. Uh, but, you know, you ask your hyper uh, district specific question and it just looks like stupidity. Well, you're, what good did that do you? What, what, what are you going to bring back to your district on that front? Who's going to care? Even what interest group is going to care? Uh, I'm, I'm, I have sometimes wondered in the kind of that committee politics world what the payoff is for that particular strategy that you're describing. I don't have a great answer, but. Yeah. Well, I mean, remember, this is not we're, this isn't actually legislation we're talking about. Right, here. This yeah. is just an oversight hearing. So legislation, the goal might be to actually get something passed that you can bring back. But I think an, an oversight hearing, uh, the, the goal might be to, to say five minutes of words that your constituents will be glad that you said, right? That, that may be it. 
right? That, that um, each of those members, if their constituents hear the five minute speech that they made, even if they didn't give Barr a chance to, to say anything, if their constituents like the sound clip of the speech that their member made, that may be all they're trying to accomplish. So maybe just a hope for uh, just a hope, just a hope for a, a, a television ad in the future is what I'm hearing you say. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's what it descends into if you have an oversight hearing with this format. That's really my, so I, I do think the format is a major uh, problem here. If you really want to get if you really want to have a format where you can get answers out of the, the attorney general or whoever's testifying, I, I think it has to be in a format where um, one uh, interrogator um, can can follow a line of questions for thirty minutes or forty five minutes and and not let the uh, uh, not let the the the, the witness uh, uh, just wiggle out um, and run out the clock. So um, I don't know. You know I don't know what the Dems could do though because I think if 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 Barr never uh, you know if they if they didn't agree to the format they agreed to he never would have come at all. Um, in the past they've subpoenaed him and they've held him in contempt for not mm-hmm. um, coming even when subpoenaed. And and I don't I, I don't know what that got him either. So it's uh, um, yeah I, I think I did they actually ever take that all the way through court? Hearing. Did they drop those? Didn't they drop those after um, they moved things onto the Senate in the impeachment? Uh, no, no, the the contempt of Congress doesn't go through court. Um, I mean, if it the only way all the contempt of Congress would be yeah. if the Attorney General, yeah, 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 the Attorney General would have to bring a charge against himself <laughs> you know, for the court. But so I'm when, holding when, myself when the, when the House votes that. Yeah, it doesn't go to court. The House can vote somebody in contempt of Congress, and they they did do that, and then that's actually the end of it. But it's essentially a symbolic vote. Yeah, I I, I was thinking about they had actually brought some. Um, cases over that but no not against Barr. you're you're accurate not against Barr, but they did vote him, they did vote him in contempt of congress in the past because he didn't come when they subpoenaed him yes um and i guess they thought maybe it would be better if they could just get him to come and so he he uh that's why they agreed to this format this time so why don't we move on to our next item uh which was this thursday's uh committee hearings where the house judiciary committee was talking to the CEOs of Apple, Google, Facebook, and Amazon, who had to testify um, from questions on their potential anti-competitive behavior and or monopolies. Uh, Now, for listeners, Ken, uh, I do want to be transparent about this because we don't oftentimes speak about companies in a big way, uh, but I do want to be transparent that I do own uh, stock in Apple, Facebook, and Amazon. It doesn't really change my opinions a whole lot. I don't have a lot of money. <laughs> I'm not exactly rich, but you know, in, in my in my retirement accounts, I do own these things, um, and those were, that was my own choices. Um, so I do point that out as we're going to be talking about this. I don't own any Google, uh, and um, anyway, draw what conclusions you will from that. Uh, but <laughs> to be uh, to be uh, transparent, there we go. Uh, but that's what happened here on Thursday, and it's really been a long time coming. I mean. Elizabeth Warren had, during her uh, run for the Democratic nomination, kind of put front and center an idea that it was time uh, to bring uh, anti-monopolistic practices against um, uh, the the big tech companies, oftentimes called FANG. And Representative David Sicilian opened by arguing that America's tech companies, they really have an outsized influence and wanted to kind of kick the ball off talking about questions over data surveillance. Um, and the ability to control what's being bought and copied and sold. Apple's kind of really the oddball out here because it was really more about their app store uh, that was the the centerpiece of the hearings. But for Google, Facebook, and Amazon, it was really about data control 
data surveillance. That's something we have talked about on the show. Uh, so, Ken, this seems to be something that's been gaining some speed. Like I mentioned, you know, we've been, even from the primaries forward. Do you think that there's going to be any kind of real reg- uh, legislation as a result of this? Uh, you know, I've got some of the, the major highlights of the, the committee hearing down, but kind of as a big picture, is, is, is this setting up for a when Biden wins, thinking about kind of a, 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 the way we uh, back in the 90s, we had a uh, anti-monopolistic practice uh, suit against Microsoft? Or is this really just a chance to gather information? What do you think? I don't think any legislation's happening uh, out of these hearings. Um, I, I think there's uh, there, there's two problems. I mean, one is like everything else in D.C. right now in Congress. Um, I think there's so much partisan gridlock that it would be not easy to reach um, any kind of uh, bipartisan agreement that would be necessary to overcome. Um, I mean, right now we actually have divided Congress, and even if we don't after the election, um, the the Republicans will still at least have a, a legislative filibuster in the Senate. I think so. I don't. I don't think there's much chance. I also think another reason there's not much chance of legislation on this issue, besides just the generic gridlock, um, is I think the the purpose of the antitrust laws um, is contested, and I think there's been somewhat of an evolution over time. Whereas I think in the 19th century, when the Sherman Act was passed, and in the early 20th century, when the Clayton Act was passed, the two main antitrust statutes. I think a lot of the concerns that animated um, Congress then that made them want to pass an antitrust act uh, was the idea that um, big big corporations are too powerful. They have too much outsized um, influence, uh, both political influence and uh, um, uh, influence on things like labor markets and, and consumer markets. It's, um, and it's just not good for anybody to be that powerful. Um, and I think that kind of vision, um, you know, maybe a, a, some Democrats still share that vision, but not even all. And I think very few Republicans share that vision, although you could speak to that probably better than I could. But I think Republicans understand the purpose of the antitrust laws primarily as being about um, consumer protection in economic markets and, and protecting um, consumers against things like monopoly pricing, um, rather than thinking about it in terms of uh, political power. And, and I think if you, if you look at these particular um, uh, uh, companies through that lens, um, there, there's not much to be worried about here because Facebook gives its product uh, for free to consumers. Google gives its product for free to consumers. Um, uh, and uh, Amazon you know, charges for goods that it sells, but it's pretty much charging less than almost any competitor is charging. Um, so I think if you think of the purpose of the antitrust laws as being to protect consumers against being um, abused by monopoly power in commercial marketplaces, um, then the, there's not a lot to be worried about here. Um, and, I, and I think you could also think about it as, as I was sort of advocating that, you know, the original Congress has thought, well, it's, it's just not good to have these companies that have so much power um, or their CEOs to have so much power or whatever. But, but I don't think there's enough consensus that that's a, a, an important purpose of antitrust law that you're really going to get um, action based on that. Now, antitrust law specifically, though, does it not require that there is consumer harm? No, I mean it doesn't require that. It's been interpreted to require that in the in since since the Reagan administration. Okay. But all those laws, all those laws are much older than the Reagan administration, and that that was not um, nobody thought that was a part of it. You know, these are laws that come from the 1890s and the 1920s, and nobody thought that was a part of it until the 1980s. Now, so for me, you know. I- 
Yeah, this may part of maybe this part of it is ideological in the sense that on the monopolistic side, that doesn't interest me as much. Um, but I will say one of the things that came through in a number of the questions, especially for Google, Facebook, and Amazon, as you pointed out, is the idea that you're giving away things for free and that really the way that that uh, is free is via your data. So my question for you is, is now this is, I mean, this is kind of a hypothetical legal question, but uh, in the sense that is, is this really kind of the anti-competitive monopolistic thing or what are we really concerned about here? Maybe kind of the underlying concern it's coming out in these uh, uh, laws in the 19th century is the idea that we want to have more ownership on our own data. So what about, again, looking back to Elizabeth Warren and others, those who have suggested maybe it's time that we have more control over data gathering mechanisms and or the data that they, how we have control over data. Do you think that's what this is really kind of underlying about, even though that's not what's being used here? Or do you really think this is about anti-monopolistic practices? You know, I think there's a well, that's really why I was just saying I think there'll be no legislation because we're coming back to a lot of people have a lot of different ideas about what this is about. But I think for there to be legislation, there'd have to be a consensus about what this is all about. And so I think to some people, it may be about data privacy. Um, to some people, ownership, it may be yeah, about yeah. outsized or ownership. Yeah. I mean, to you know, some people might even say it is about the um, pricing in the markets and that the, the market that's priced here is advertising dollars. Um, that that's really what Facebook and Google are selling. So there's a lot of ways of looking at what it's about. But I, I think because there's so many ways of looking at what it's about, that there's so many different people who have different views from each other about, well, what is the problem that we're trying to solve here that um, that, that I, I think we won't get consensus. But on the data privacy issue, one more thing I'd add to that mm -hmm. is I don't see that that's really a, a, a monopoly power problem because I'm fairly sure that people would rather give up data privacy than pay money. You know, if, if you had a service like Facebook out there and you had to pay $10 a month for it and they didn't collect any data on you, um, I, I'm pretty confident to predict that that would not be a winning business model, that, that most most American consumers would say, no, I'll take the free version. I don't care if I'm giving up data privacy. And I think you can see that um, in the grocery stores, right, that um, pretty much every American has a choice. You know, you could shop in a grocery store and not tell anybody who you are and not tell anyone what you're buying and not let them track that. And you can pay a little bit more um, or you can sign up for your discount card at the grocery store, your frequent customer card. And, you, and, and then they'll keep data on every single purchase that you make and they'll sell that data to all kinds of telemarketers to market to you based on what your actual grocery purchases are. And they'll mm -hmm. get your name and address and phone number and email address and all that when they buy that data. And you'll get a discount on some products sometimes and you get some coupons. And pretty much every American does that. There's almost none who choose no, I want to keep my data privacy, and so I'd rather pay more at the supermarket. No, you're not wrong. As a matter of fact, on the show, we we have talked about specifically retailers and retailers' ability. It's been you know about when we were first teaming up to do this yeah. show together, Tim. We when we talked about Target's ability uh, to predict pregnancies on the basis of uh, right, right. of your purchases. Um, yeah. So just to clarify the connection between that and what I was, I think the reason that Google and Facebook are able to get data out of people is not because they have this monopoly leverage and they can force data out of people. I think it's because they're offering a product that people would rather pay for 
by giving up data than by giving up cash. And so people, you know, even if there was a competitive, more competitive market where people could choose a search engine and choose a, a, a social media that you, you, you don't have to give up your data, but you do have to pay cash. Um, I don't think people would choose that. Yeah, I, I can't say that you're probably wrong about that. I, I know that I am personally in the minority on that one. Um, uh, I have a number of services that I use that are encrypted that I pay for as opposed to having uh, mm-hmm. uh, uh, data. Um, but, I, you know, I, I can't disagree with the underlying argument. So kind of the, to sum those two stories together a little bit up, I mean, are we, are we ultimately just saying here that committee hearings never matter, Ken, when it comes to these kinds of well, <laughs> uh, questioning of people? Well, I think, I think in a time of divided government like now, um, the hearings are not going to matter that much. The hearings are about, um, you know, giving people an opportunity, um, hopefully to learn something and educate the public or maybe to um, get a better um, refinement of the, the, what their own platforms and positions are. You know, so if the Democrats and the Republicans each learn something from these hearings, even if they're not learning the same thing as each other from these hearings, then they can get a better idea when they go out um, talking about what they believe or what they think we should have a law. And that can differentiate um, the candidates for voters. And it can it can tell you something about what might happen in a time if government wasn't divided. Um, You know, we maybe you know, maybe there's some value now before this election that if if the. uh, if the Democrats and the Republicans end up having different platforms from each other about what they want to do about these large media companies, um, then voters can use that in part to choose which party they want to vote for in the congressional elections or in the presidential election. So there could be some value there. Um, and it could turn into actual legislation in times when government's not as divided as now. Yeah, no, I mean, you can't be disagreeing. I mean, even when you look at the questions, Republicans are uniformly really kind of worried about uh, Facebook. Uh, suppressing conservative voices. And I think Democrats are mostly concerned uh, about monopolistic practices and maybe a few oddball libertarians like myself are worried about data privacy um, yeah, or data ownership. Uh- <laughs> so, can I, can I, I, know, I know we talked about this a long time, but since you just mentioned the thing about silencing conservative voices, that, that really irks me, I have to say, because, um, you know, I, I study communications law and, and I've followed these issues for a long time. In broadcasting, uh, there used to be the FCC used to enforce a doctrine against um, radio and television broadcasters called the fairness doctrine. Mm-hmm. And have, they used to, uh, they used to require. Yeah, you require opposing viewpoints. And it was it was conservatives that went to war against that, beginning with the Reagan administration. And uh, the Reagan administration actually succeeded in getting rid of the fairness doctrine. And they they argued that that was a form of censorship because, you know, programs like the Rush Limbaugh show that emerged once they got rid of the fairness doctrine, um, you could never have emerged when there was a fairness doctrine unless the stations that broadcast Rush Limbaugh were able to then do a th- were willing to do a three hour show with a liberal. Right. Um, and if they weren't willing, if they weren't willing to do both, you couldn't have Rush Limbaugh. So the, so the conservatives back then, their whole position was you can't have the government regulating this. You've got to let these media companies air the political stuff that they want to air. And if it's one sided, so be it, because anything else is censorship. A requirement of equal time is censorship. A requirement that that the the um, that the broadcasters not be biased, you know, is censorship. That was the that was the conservative mantra. And now it feels to me like they flipped 180 degrees, you know, that uh, on the on these social media companies <laughs> like they're saying, well, they, they should they shouldn't um, uh, target conservative voices and they shouldn't advance liberal views. But yet, you know, that, that's the, it's 180 degrees the opposite on their position. Um, about the proper relationship between government and, and private media companies, 
that they used to articulate because they used to articulate that the government shouldn't play any role in telling these private media platforms um, to give equal time to anybody. Well, and it's also just simply a ridiculous position to argue that the First Amendment applies uh, to private publishers. Right? And, and so in the case of Facebook or Twitter or anybody else, uh, since they're the one creating the platform, no one is forcing you to be on that particular platform. Uh, I, I, I just I, I, I fail to see how you can argue. Well, I, there's no failing. There is there is no case law or constitutional basis for suggesting that the First Amendment uh, applies to a newspaper that won't run somebody's particular opinion piece. Right. And, and that's effectively what you're arguing there is, is that every private corporation, if they uh, if they decline to run your position, have violated your First Amendment rights. Right. I mean, it, it's it's a little bit more complicated. I mean, I think what you just said is 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 generally the tenor of that's a correct summary of the, the general uh, law on this point. But there there are nuances and exceptions because the when the when the broadcasting when they did have the fairness doctrine in broadcasting and uh, radio that all and happened television, through the which FC, are, that was all through FCC regulations, FCC. not through first. In other words. Those were exemptions to the First Amendment because yeah, exemptions, broadcast right. broadcast media was considered to be a public good and therefore didn't receive full First Amendment constitutional protection yes. because there was a limited amount of it. Right. There was only so many channels. There's only so much spectrum effect. Yeah. Um, that, so that's it, exactly right. Yeah. But but you could you could similarly conceptualize um, uh, search engines like Google or, or social media platforms like Facebook, I think, as being public utilities. Nobody has conceptualized them that way. But I think ultimately it's a it's a question of um, labels, right? Because broadcasting was labeled as a, a public good, a public trust, a use of the airwaves were labeled as public airwaves and scarce resources. And, you know, newspapers were never labeled as that. But but, you know, there's also a scarce amount of paper in the world to publish newspapers on. Um, and in fact, you know, newspapers, daily newspapers were more scarce than than broadcast stations. Most most cities only ever had one or two or maybe three daily newspapers. At the same time, they had eight or 10 television stations and 20 or 30 radio stations. So well, you know, well, those kind of labels. Be careful say, there. I mean, <laughs> even historically speaking, what what city ever had 10, especially at the ad- advent when you're talking about the creation of the SAC, whatever, what, what, whatever, uh, what, what town ever had 10 uh, radio or uh, uh, television stations. I mean, you were generally talking about two, maybe three. So maybe more similar. No, I'm there, saying. There were, no, there were there were many more than that. The, 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 so it's, the fairness doctrine that we're talking about um, was sustained in the U.S. Supreme Court in 1969 in a case called Red Lion. Mm-hmm. So in 1969, mo- most of your most of your cities would have had, you know, at least. Uh, an ABC affiliate, an NBC affiliate, a CBS affiliate, a PBS affiliate, because PBS was already going by then. And they would have probably had four or five independent stations, at least maybe some religious broadcasters, maybe some some stations that just showed reruns. Um, but you you typically had that. I mean, the, the, the TV, the, the analog television sets that people used to have even before there was cable TV, they'd go from channel two to channel 13 on the VHF dial. And then they'd go from channel 14 to channel 69 on the UHF mm-hmm. dial. So in, prin- in principle, there were 68 channels available. And I think 10 was fairly typical for, for mid-sized cities. Um, you know, there were never 10 national networks, but there were, but there were more independent stations and syndication played more of a role. And, and, 
and religious broadcasting played a role. If, if you add it up, it was about 10. And, and with AM and FM, you know, typically 30 or 40 and in some markets more. So, you know, it's there true that the radio, Supreme Court true, said, yeah. well, yeah, yeah. the Supreme Court says, well, broadcast spectrum is scarce, you know, unlike uh, newsprint. But that's a that's a distinction without a difference. I mean, every every resource is scarce. Ultimately, there's a finite amount of paper and ink in the world, um, just like there's a finite amount of usable uh, broadcast spectrum. In fact, in some ways, if anything's infinite, it's broadcast spectrum, because it's only by the choice of the FCC that radios go from 55 a.m. to 1600 a.m. And from 88 FM to 107 FM, they could make those dials twice as long or three times as long if they wanted to and fit in many more stations. So I, I don't I think those were categories. You were correctly reciting the Supreme Court's do- doctrine. But I think <laughs> I think that that doctrine was reflecting some very artificial categories that really come down to just how people want to think about things. And some people would want to think about um, today's um, social media networks as as public utilities. And, you know, they've never been classified that way, but it's not beyond the realm of thinking to classify them that way. So I, I but I but again, I find it so interesting that it's mainly conservatives that are calling for that now when uh, when conservatives were, were really the ones who were very, very adamant of uh, imposing the opposite, you know, having the opposite regime for broadcasters, that broadcasters should be allowed to broadcast the political content that they want, even if it's very one sided and the government shouldn't be telling them that they have to broadcast both sides. We'll leave it to historical nu- nuance and the history of political communication to be the uh, subject that gets us all riled up, Ken. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> what was the thing this week that got you? Well, we were talking about how many. Uh, anyway, <laughs> but I think, you know, I'm going to actually have to go back and look at that. And because uh, you're often right. And I, I think on this one, I actually have you. But um, we'll have to we'll have to see right. at least on the number. We'll talk about the number. Um, I mean, you're okay. right about the number of potential channels on your television. Um, but if I am remembering historically correctly, I don't, I think you might be overestimating the number of, uh, average channels, but I mean, I think now we're probably getting way too deep into the week. <laughs> it's more of a grudge. <laughs> uh, so why don't we finish uh-huh. up with one last story, uh, Ken? Uh, and that is our COVID, uh, negotiations. Uh, the Senate adjourned on Friday without a compromise or path forward between Democrats and Republicans on a second COVID stimulus package, uh, or really for a solution to the decrease in unemployment checks, which is going to be happening uh, on the end of day. It happened on the end of day Friday, excuse me. Um, The CARES Act, which happened back in the spring, included a $600 a week supplemental uh, unemployment benefit. It was an issue for Republicans and on their radar since it passed because it meant that some recipients were actually able to collect more from unemployment as a result than they normally earn from their jobs. Now, it's worth recognizing that the, the uh, goal generally of unemployment is not to get somebody all of their money, but rather about 50% of it. Now, I can't imagine trying to live on 50% of my salary, but we'll put that to the side for a moment. Um, Democrats wanted to extend those kinds of ca- that CARES Act uh, package for unemployment through the beginning of 2021, uh, while Republicans have wanted to reduce it uh, mainly universally uh, to 200 in supplemental uh, supplemental income through September, and then to shift to a system that is attempting to replace about 70% of a person's wages through the end of 2020, again, as opposed to the more normal 50%. Uh, so why not just try to hit wage replacement? Well, the answer is federalism in this case. States really don't have, many states don't have the ability to assess that currently, 
Uh, and so to try to cap that perfectly at 100% simply isn't a possibility. And so we have Republicans and Democrats battling it out over how much supplemental um, uh, benefits should be coming from the federal government to states. Meanwhile, there's also some major debate over a second round of direct payments. Republicans, uh, specifically President Trump, would like to see uh, that happen again. And, and the proposal on the table from their side is that they want $1,000 a person, but this time to include children so that that can go much larger for larger uh, households. Um, but Democrats want the payouts to be larger for adults and potentially to be reoccurring if we take a look at the House's measure. Uh, a loss in a lot of this, from my point of view, uh, is, is I don't think anybody's really talking about the, the inflation, uh, especially when we're already talking about what the Fed is doing to prop up markets. Uh, you eventually have to pay for this stuff. Uh, but Ken, so what do you think? I think there's a lot of consensus that at some point, probably there's going to be uh, a package that comes out. Uh, but, you know, it, it sounds like the devil is all in the details. I know that when we had talked about this before, back in the spring, you were very much against the um, the universal payouts and wanted to see kind of more robust um, uh, unemployment benefits. Uh, and so where do you kind of stand on round two? Yeah, I'm in the same place on that. And, and I think um, I, I, I'm not sure there's going to be a deal, actually. I, I think it looked to me today like the, the, the conditions were emerging for one because three Republican senators, um, was it Romney and Collins and Sinema, uh, um, supported the Democratic plan for the $15 minimum wage, which is the, I mean, the six, that's the $600 a week um, yeah, 600. Uh, unemployment bump yeah. up that you're talking about. Yeah, which is predicated on $15 an hour for yes. 40 hours a week. Uh, yeah, it doesn't so, change minimum wage. But, yeah, that's, yeah. No, it doesn't change the minimum wage for working people, but it functionally does because people who aren't working would get paid that much. Yes, as you were saying. So it's uh, um, so the the um, I I don't I don't think enough Republicans were willing to go for that. I'm not sure if that's going to change, but I actually cannot see any reason the Democrats would make any agreement that doesn't include that. I don't think there's any other issue as important as that um, from the Democratic perspective, and I would not. You know, if 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 I was in the Congress right now. If if the six hundred dollar a week bump up for unemployment didn't continue, um, I wouldn't I wouldn't vote for any other kind of relief bill without that, because I think that's you know that's the most necessary thing to help the people who've actually uh, been the most severely impacted by um, by by the, the 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 impact of the COVID pandemic on the economy, people who've who've been put out of work and and need to keep living. Um, you know, I think that's who we need to worry about the most. And I, I can't see really worrying about any other group um, more than worrying about that group. And, and, I, and then I also think that I called it a $15 minimum wage. And I think that's part of it, that from a Democratic perspective, if you're for a $15 an hour minimum wage, then this does help set up the conditions for that. Mm -hmm. You know, once, once you get the, the, the sort of baseline there that $15 an hour is about the right amount of money to be paying out for people who suddenly become involuntarily unemployed because that's really the minimum that people could live on in this country, um, then I think that that logically sets a predicate for coming back and doing a, a $15 an hour minimum wage, which I, I think most of the Democrats would like to do and I would like to see. So to me, that's the key to everything. But yet I think the Republicans, I mean, you'll have to answer for that, but I, I think they're pretty opposed to that. I don't know that they're going to go for that, but I don't know what else would make Democrats want to vote for uh, another, another round of, 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 of uh, relief. My take at the end of the day is, is that I think that they end up meeting in the middle on that one. 
in part because I think Democrats are going to want to get uh, benefits out to states who are having financial issues as a result of uh, uh, of COVID. Um, now, what? Now, one of the things I, I had thought about as I was kind of watching this unfold, of course, is if you don't come to an agreement, what you will effectively do is force states to reopen, right? Because you can't go into lockdown. <laughs> Uh, if you aren't going to have kind of robust unemployment, there's there, there's there's just absolutely no way. Uh, and so, I mean, if you're right about that, I, th- I think what you force is a complete reopening. Um, have, I mean, had, had, was that something you had thought about at all? I mean, for me, that that seemed to be no, something I- on the on the potentially kind of lurking behind the agenda was to say, well, look, you know, if if you can't put that out, I mean. I, you can't lock down again. That that I, kind of ends it. That opens schools. That opens all kind of things. Because who? What do you? What else do you do? So yeah, I, I had I hadn't thought about it, but I don't agree with it. Um, I don't think that could work because um, ultimately, in 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 many states, the uh, um, the 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 public health criteria that are being used um, to decide what can be reopened and what can't be reopened. Um, there's there's going to be a lot of. Um, I think there's going to be a lot of inertia, a lot of momentum. Um, to say we need to stick with that. If if we can't reopen because it's unsafe to reopen, um, I don't think the economic impact is going to um, cause the relevant decision makers to change their mind. After yeah, well, all, this, if people this aren't getting their income and they're voting them out of office, and you have an election they won't year, voting them out of office. I, I think that I think that Democrats would say, well, we will be running on the fact that we're going to, you know, if we get into Congress and we get. Uh, and we get the White House, then we're going to reinstate the $15 um, an hour unemployment benefit. And we're also going to bring in the $15 an hour minimum wage. So I don't think that I don't think anyone would. I think both oh, I'm sides talking about faces. states. I'm talking about I'm talking about state officials. Yep. Right. So I, I, my thing is, is yep. if the feds don't have that happen, then I think state officials will be forced to think about monkeying with those because they're the ones who are going to get voted out. I, I, I don't think people at the national level would. You know, you're right. I think Democrats could make a, a, a case for running on that. Um, a good yeah. one, but the governors who I, you, listen, I'm out of work and I'm still out of work because yeah. the governor won't open back up because they're not going to pay my unemployment benefits. I'm going to blame the governor. Yeah, I don't think it would work that way. I, th- I think most um, Democrats and Republicans would blame the other side for um, the impasse, and so uh, you're you're contemplating some people changing their votes, but I'm not sure whether it's the whether you're contemplating that Democrats would change their votes or Republicans would change their votes, but I, I don't see, see either. I think I think if 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 you if you just have a continuation of the present status quo, but everything's getting even worse, right? The disease is getting worse, the economy's getting worse, the unemployment benefits are getting worse, everything's just getting worse. Um, it seems to me that the what that means is that both sides end up thinking, we really, really, really gotta win this election. We gotta get rid of those 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 villains on the other side. So that we can start moving things in the right direction again, and I, I don't see that anybody, you know, says, "Well, I'm going to turn against the incumbent." It's not about whether they're the incumbent; it's about what party. It's about what party they're in. I think. I mean, I think there is evidence to suggest that, especially in state and local elections, that your well-being can turn you against incumbents. Uh, so I don't disagree that uh, party preference is the biggest predictor for voting. Uh, but I do think it's malle- malleable, uh, especially when it comes to severe economic, uh, you know, pocketbook voting effectively against incumbents. You blame incumbents for circumstances in which you find yourself 
uh, in the current election. And that even applies as you move up a little bit when you talk about presidents. Whether or not it's those individuals' faults doesn't really matter so much as uh, the connection between this person is in office, this is the kind of negativity that's happened. Um, so I think we might have a little bit of a disagreement there, which is always fun. <laughs> yeah, yeah, because yeah. I think that if you've got people, say, who've been um, they've, they've lost their jobs, they're getting $15 an hour right now on unemployment, it's very clear that Democrats want to extend that and the Republicans won't allow it. Um, I think that uh, if, if those people are Democrats already, they're still going to be voting Democrat. You know, you know, I, I don't see anything that changes that equation there, really. So you, you're a, you're a hundred uh, percent predictor is always going to be uh, partisan uh, ideal, or, uh, partisan ID. Well, because here we're talking about a failure to make a deal, right? Everybody's going to lose. Everybody in the country is going to lose if Congress doesn't make a deal. But I think if 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 everybody loses and it's because Congress didn't make a deal, I do think people are going to blame the the uh, the opposite party from their own party for being the reason that a deal couldn't be reached. Okay. Well, I'd be interested to see. Well, Ken, it's yeah. been a lot of fun doing the show. We've gone a little bit long today, actually. I didn't think that was going to happen. Yeah. But uh, here we go. I have listeners who loved it. Uh, Ken, has been fun doing it with you. Thank you for everybody for listening to the politics, guys. I want you all to know uh, that all the hosts, myself included, we really do love working on the show. I wouldn't be doing this after being in the hospital if I didn't. Um, and to make it possible, what it takes is really cool, amazing listeners like you guys. Um, one of the ways that you can help support the show is by subscribing to the politics guys on the podcast app of your choice. We were just talking about kind of the difficulties with money. Um, and that's something I think we all share during this time. And, uh, so sharing and subscribing, uh, and sending out your favorite episode, this episode is certainly a way that helps the show grow, uh, uh, for free. Um, but for those of you who do have the ability and the time, the inclination, we also need your support. One of the great things about being a supporter is you're going to get access to additional content. And one of those is our full-length supporters-only Wednesday show. Uh, so if you want to become a supporter or check out more of the benefits of becoming a supporter of the Politics Guys, you can check out our Patreon page at patreon.com slash politicsguys. Or you can go to politicsguys.com slash support. So join me and Ken again on Wednesday by heading to patreon.com slash politicsguys. We're going to be talking about Donald Trump's tweet on delaying the election and a lot of other fun things. So again, head to patreon.com slash politicsguys to get Ken and I full length bonus Wednesday show. If you've got a question, comment, correction, or just a random thought you want to share, you can always reach us at mail at politicsguys.com. We also strive for civil and rational debate on our Reddit at Bipartisan Politics or Reddit at Bipartisan Politics. We're also on Twitter at Politics Guys. The executive producers of the Politics Guys are Bruce Johnson, Wilma Morano, Andra Masker, Daniel Toe, and Chris Wilkerson. Today's show was produced by myself, Trey Orndorff. We'll be back with a new bonus show on Wednesday. I hope you'll join us then.